looking at uh, verses uh, 27 through 40. I think I made a mistake because in your bulletin it says Luke chapter 27 through chapter 40. There are two mistakes there. First of all, I cannot cover 13 chapters in a single morning. And number two, there are, there Luke does not have a chapter 27 through chapter 40. Um, so um, I send off my notes and they, and the people print them and who do that print them faithfully. <laughs> And we are grateful for all those who work so hard to uh, make this church work. So, um, lots of things have to happen in a church service to, uh, to go. So anyways, Luke chapter 20, verses 27 through 40. So as I'm reading this, we're coming to the last, the last of these uh, questions. Remember, Jesus is being questioned for... Uh, there's, there's an, he's being... He's being presented with all of these various questions. It just reminded me, have you ever been watching a movie, like a fight scene, right? And I was trying to find a good royalty-free fight scene that I could bring up on, on video that wouldn't get us in trouble with copyright laws or anything, and I couldn't. So, anyways, reminds me of a good, good movie fight scene where there's the good guy, and he's surrounded by 10 or 20 bad guys. And the 10 or 20 bad guys keep coming at him one at a time, and he disposes of them, and here comes one, pow, and off he goes, and here comes another one, boom, and off he goes. This is what's, re- I don't know, this is what I'm thinking when I'm reading the text here. Because Jesus is sitting there, and all of his enemies are coming at him one at a time, trying to trip him up, trying to, to uh, um, confuse him, trying to... Uh, lure him into a misstep so that they can crucify him, and he quickly and easily disposes of each of them. So this is the last guy coming up, trying to fight against Christ, and they are seeking to, um, to discredit Jesus, and ultimately their desire is to put him to death, and this is the, that last bad guy, I guess, if you can call it that, that last bad guy coming, and Jesus disposes, disposes of him, or them, actually, beautifully. I say this often this is why children go to children's church because I cannot out cute that (laughs) there is no competition so that's just kind of a uh, a quick overview so this is this Last of a series of questions or attempts to discredit Jesus. That's kind of where we've been. They've been uh, trying to uh, put Jesus to death. But here's where I want to go today. This is the, the hopeful objective, is that we're going to see that Jesus not only silences his, his inquisitors, but he teaches them the truth. And this is important because Jesus is not simply trying to win an argument. He does win an argument. But he also imparts to them Biblical truth, God's truth. And maybe we can keep that in mind. Sometimes we engage in others with, with people and, and we engage in, in controversial subjects. Maybe they're unbelievers or even uh, uh, other believers. And sometimes I think perhaps we get so wrapped up and we think that our goal is to win the argument. Our goal is not simply to win an argument. Our goal is to impart truth. And this is what Jesus is going to do. He's going to address 
the, the questions that are presented to them, and then he's going to guide them to something much more important, to a much more important issue. And what we hope to learn today is the importance of sound doctrine. Sound doctrine is um, essential or central to this passage of text. Now, if you've been in this church very long, that statement, sound doctrine um, is essential, will not come as a shock or a surprise to you. If you are visiting or you are new here, sometimes people have problems with that idea of doctrine, which just simply means teaching. And we just want to make sure that we teach God's truth. And, um, and so it is central because, as we're going to see, what you, what you do or how you live is grounded in what you believe. And so there's a whole lot of folks who will simply say, well, you don't need to really be worried about doctrine. You just need to, to live the gospel or love Christ. Well, that's a, a self-contradicting statement because that statement is itself doctrine. But we live what we believe. If I believe that I can drive well beyond the speed limit if I believe that there is no photo, there is no radar, there is no cop, there is nobody who I can harm um, on this long stretch of highway. If I believe I can do that, I will probably live or drive in a way um, that is commiserate with that belief system. So that's what we want to do. Doctrine's important. Teaching's important because we live out what we believe. All right, so that's kind of an overview and a preview of where we're going to go. And so with that, let's go ahead and read, follow along with me as we read our text, and then we'll, uh, we'll look at some of the practical applications of this. So, chapter 20, verse 27 through 40. This is the word of the Lord. There came to him some Sadducees, those who deny that there is a resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies, having a wife but no children, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now, there were seven brothers. The first took a wife and died without children. And the second and the third took her. And likewise, all seven left no children and died. Afterward, the woman also died. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife will the woman be? For the seven had her as a wife. Jesus said to them, The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage, for they cannot die anymore, because they are equal to the angel's and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. But that the dead are raised, even Moses showed in the passage about the bush, where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Now, he is not the God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. Then some of the scribes answered, Teacher, you have spoken well, for they no longer dared to ask him any questions. This ends the reading of God's inerrant word. So let me give you a little bit of background here. We, we need to uh, set the stage and, and uh, provide a little bit of information to help bring this passage of text to life, to, uh, to add some, some contrast to it. And it begins with this group of people called the Sadducees who come to Jesus. Now, here's the thing. Um, really, very little is known about Sadducees. We know, we, we know a little bit about them, but, but not a whole lot. And 
most of what we, we know actually comes from their enemies. So none of their writings actually survive. So we have no writings from the Sadducees. What we have is we have writings from the Pharisees who didn't like the, the Sadducees. We have some writings from the historian Josephus, who was also no, was not loyal to the Sadducees. And we have scripture. So that's really what we have. So that doesn't mean we can't know anything. It just lets us know there's very, we, we don't know a whole lot about this particular group. And in 70 AD, after the destruction of Jerusalem, this group ceased to exist. So we know a little bit about their origins, or we can make some educated guess about their origins, and we know a little bit about um, who they were and what they believed. So let's look a little bit about some of their religious beliefs, and then we'll look at some of their uh, social and political beliefs. But their religious beliefs um, were that they followed the Pentateuch. That is all that they considered as the Word of God, the Pentateuch, which is the first five books of the Bible. Penta is five, two, three books, or scrolls, and so um, the Pentateuch, the first five scrolls, uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, that's scripture. Everything else, the other books of the Old Testament, the other scrolls of the, the, the Old Testament would be considered commentary, but not authoritative. All right? So um, the first five books are authoritative. Everything else is, commenta- uh, is commentary. So this... This was different from the Pharisees. The Pharisees considered the entire um, Old Testament, or what's called the Tanakh, that is the um, that is considered scripture. Now, the Pharisees also believed in oral tradition and a variety of other things. So they were not sola scriptura. They believed in the, what we have as 39 books. They didn't have 30. They had less than 39 books, but that's another subject. Um, and they believed those were the word of God, but they also believed in oral tradition and in other commentaries. The Sadducees believed in the first five books of the Bible, and that's it. And they are the word of God. They are the authoritative word of God. All right? Not only, that's not, the, the other thing that the, the Sadducees held to was they were anti-supernatural. That is, they did not believe in angels. They did not believe in the resurrection. They did not believe in, in the afterlife. They were very rationalistic. There is no supernatural. There is nothing beyond this life. When you die, that is it. That's, it's over. There is no resurrection. There is no life with God for eternity. This is it. In fact, Acts chapter 23, verse 8 says, they speaking, they, the Sadducees say, there is no resurrection, nor angels, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. So the Sadducees do not believe in angels. They do not believe in, um, in the afterlife. Very, I guess, rationalistic. The other thing we should note, at least religiously, about the, the Sadducees is that they are very influential. Um, they comprised the majority of the Sanhedrin, which was the ruling council. They were also the high priests. Um, uh, they had high moral standards, or for the most part, um, at least in regards to others, you need to be moral. Um, so they had high moral standards in that regard. So they had this, this view of Scripture. They followed the Pentateuch, just the first five books of the Bible. They, they were anti-supernatural. They were uh, very influential in, in uh, how the religious, uh, how religion operated in, in Israel. Um, and so those are just some things you need to know that I think are going to be important as we go forward. But let's, we also need to consider their social and political 
background because this will also help us in understanding this passage of text. And that is they were, first of all, they were aristocratic. They were rich. All right. Generally very, very wealthy. That makes sense, doesn't it? Because if you're anti, if there is no life after death, then that means this life is everything. So you might as well grab it while you can. You might as well be happy. Do you see how our beliefs affect the way we live? All right. So they tend to be very, um, very wealthy and they gathered and, and, and uh, hoarded. I don't want to say hoarded, but they're wit. I'll just say they're rich. That's easier. All right, so that's the first thing. They're also very politically pragmatic. They cooperated with Rome in order to maintain their position and their influence. This makes sense also. If there is no afterlife, then, and we are happen to be ruled by a foreign pagan power, we might as well side with them so that we can maintain our power in this life because there is nothing to come. So again, you see how the way they live is um, is is modeled after what they believe. So they are politically pragmatic. So once again, just a quick summary. Their doctrine influences the way they live. And so with that, they now come at Jesus with a question. They're seeking to um, discredit Jesus. The ultimate goal is they want to, get, um, they want to put Jesus to death. Um, so they're going to try to... Uh, confound Jesus, get him to say something that is, um, that is worthy of either being discredited and shunned or ultimately put to death. That's where they're going to go. So here's, here's the question. Now, in order to understand the question, we need to understand um, the law of Leverite marriage in the Old Testament. You can see why we, it's really important to have a good grounding in the Old Testament. I know there are some folks who think that the Old Testament doesn't need to be studied, but you cannot understand this passage of text if you do not understand the Old Testament because they, they ask the question that's, bounded, that's grounded in the, um, the Mosaic statute of Leverite marriage. And Leverite marriage is something very foreign to us. It's brother-in-law marriage is what it is. So that's what it means. We find it in Deuteronomy chapter 25. We also... Um, see a reference or, or an allusion or a, a model in Genesis 38. Also in the book of Ruth, you see it. All right? So if you've read Ruth, Ruth you, you'd be fairly familiar with this idea of Leverite marriage. And the idea was that a, a man's name, a family name, was very precious and it needed to be carried on and maintained one of the worst things that could happen would be that you would have no children to carry on a family name. This was also important in in the area of your inheritance and land. God promised land to what? Tribes. And the tribes then were given pieces of land and it was divided up by families. And so your inheritance was tied to your name. And so this was a regulation that was... uh, was given so that a man's name would continue on and his inheritance would not be lost. That's kind of the background behind it. And it goes basically like this. If a man dies without um, having a a male, well, an an offspring, uh, without having a child, then the brother of the man would take his wife 
and have children through her and raise up that child in the name of the deceased brother. That's where we're at. All right? Don't ask me to explain much more. But that's leave right marriage. And it is to maintain the family name and the family inheritance. And this is where the, the Sadducees come. Remember, they don't believe in the resurrection. But they're asking this question, and I think it's one of those questions that they have devised and probably used very effectively against the pro-resurrection parties, such as the, the Pharisees, and they've used this effectively to stump them. And they've used it often, and it has been very effective in stumping their opponents, and so now they're going to bring it to Jesus, saying, nobody can answer this question. This is a good one. We're going to stump Jesus because nobody knows how to give an adequate answer to this. It's kind of like when somebody comes to you and thinks that they can, I don't know, destroy your faith by saying, well, if God is good, why is there evil? Well, it's a tough question. No doubt about it. It's a tough question. But the idea is to get you to give an inadequate answer, and then then they can reply and say, aha, see, that's a stupid answer. Therefore, your whole faith is useless. That's the idea here. They're coming with a question that has stumped their uh, opponents, and they're thinking now, here, we got a great one. Wait till we throw our throw our baffling question Jesus' way. He won't be able to answer it. He'll be stumped. We can discard him. We can also then show up those stupid Pharisees and show how ridiculous they, their beliefs are and we will come out on top. We get, get rid of Jesus and we um, shame and mock our Pharisaic opponents. That's the idea behind this. So it's meant to stump those who believed in the resurrection. And so the, the Sadducees are taking their best theological shot. It's a good one, by the way. Because the idea here is, that if you believe in the resurrection, it is absurd. And here's how absurd it is. We've got this woman. She has seven husbands. Whose wife is she going to be in the resurrection? Oh, you can't answer? Well, then the whole idea of resurrection is absurd. It's silly. Why would you even believe such a stupid thing? That's the idea. But we should note that it's based on a couple of presuppositions. The first presupposition is that it's based on is that there is a continuity between this life and the life to come. That is the, the age to come, the resurrected life, eternal life, and this life are exactly the same. Jesus is going to show that the life to come is, there is some similarities, but they are not the same. That's the basic thing. And the other presupposition, as I mentioned, is the absurdity of this woman's dilemma because it demonstrates the absurdity of resurrection. So that's kind of where we're at. So a lot of this is kind of background, but are are you with me? Have I baffled you too much? Okay, because I've baffled myself, so. So that's the question. What's the answer? Well, Jesus responds to them. And the main problem that the Sadducees have, um, Luke, I'm going to pull from Mark and Matthew, because Mark and Matthew also um, recount this, this same event, but they, Jesus tells the Sadducees something that I think is really critical. Luke doesn't record it, 
but I think it's at the very heart of the issue. And so they ask Jesus this question about the, the one bride and the seven brothers, and they say, whose um, wife will she be in the resurrection? And Jesus then rebukes them. He says, here's your problem. You don't know God's word and you don't know the power of God. So at the very heart of this issue is the fact that you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. So before we get in, this had to really kind of chafe at the Sadducees who would consider themselves experts in the Pentateuch. You don't even know your Bible. And you only got five books to know. It's not like the, the Pharisees who've got a lot more to know. You got five and you don't even know those five. Are you joking me? You think you're going to stump me? So you don't know the scriptures and you do not know the power of God. So the first thing we're going to see that Jesus is going to do is he's going to appeal to God's word. He's going to appeal to scripture and not human reason. This, this baffling question is based 100% on human reason. It has nothing to do with scripture. So Jesus is now going to appeal to, human, uh, he, appeal to scripture and not to human reason. And we should note that the lack of a scriptural foundation led to the idea that the relationships in this age and the relationships in the age to come are identical, but it has nothing to do with Scripture. So, matters of marriage and sex and inheritance and reproduction and childbearing are for this life, not the one to come. So, Jesus says, um, the sons of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy to attain to that age, so you notice there's this age, the one we're living in, and that age, the one to come, that age into the resurrection from the dead, neither marry or are given in marriage, for they cannot, notice the four, for they cannot die anymore because they are equal to angels and are sons of God being sons of the resurrection. So, you do not understand the scripture and you do not understand the power of God. Matters of marriage and sex and inheritance and all those things uh, childbearing are for this life, not the one to come. Jesus says, and the reason is, is that they cannot die anymore. So there is no possibility of losing a child or not having a child since there are no children born. There is no possibility of somebody dying and being unable to carry on the family name because you're, you're going to live forever. There is no sickness, there is no death. In the age to come, there is no sickness, there is no death. And so therefore, there is no need to repopulate. And nobody dies, so you don't have to replace them. You don't even know the, the scriptures or the power of God. Nobody needs to replace. They can't die anymore. They've underestimated God's power to raise the dead and give new bodies that are incorruptible. They have underestimated the power of God to raise the dead and to give incorruptible bodies to them. Again, this has a studied this in Bible study this morning. In this sense, they are like angels. They exist forever. It's interesting that Jesus puts in they are like the angels because remember what is one of the things the Sadducees don't believe in? Angels. So, you don't even believe the, the scriptures or the power of God. God is able to raise the dead. God is get, able to give them um, immortality, so there, there, will never, there will no longer be death or sorrow or, or anything temporal. It will all be, um, all my tears will be washed away. Nobody has to be replaced. 
So that's the first thing he says. Now, I, just a kind of a personal challenge and probably a question that, that probably arises from all of the, everybody who has read this, and that is, um, so in the eternal state, there is no marriage and there is no marriage relationship. Is that what you're saying? Well, that's a challenge. Will I be married to Simone in the eternal state? I mean, right next to salvation, Simone's probably the greatest thing that's happened in my life. Will she be my wife in the eternal state? I don't know exactly how the eternal state looks and functions. Here's what I will do. I will trust God that the pleasures of the age to come are far superior than the pleasures of this age. So I don't know what... I know that there will be no children born in the eternal state and nobody will ever die but the saved are the saved and they live forever but whatever God has intended whatever God has planned for his people for eternity I am going to believe in the goodness and the glorious nature of God that whatever he has prepared is so far superior to what we have in this world that we will never ever look back and say, oh man, remember when we were like on the fallen earth in our fallen states? Remember how good that was? I don't, right? We're not going to be looking back like Israelite did. You remember when we had all the fish and the leeks and the onions and all that good food? No, you were slaves. You made bricks out of hay. That's what you did. God said, don't look back to Egypt. You, you were slaves there. Whatever the eternal state is, it will not be something where we look back at this and say, man, I wish. I have longed for the days when I was in my sinful state, wrestling against sin, separated from this close relationship. Whatever the eternal state is, it's going to be way better than this. And that I'm going to trust and believe our God who has created all things and made us for that. So, that question comes up and perhaps I kind of copped out. Basically, I don't know is really what it is. I don't know exactly what the eternal state is. Anybody who tells you that they do know um, didn't get it from Scripture. Um, we have some hints and some clues as to what's going to happen there. But I know this, we will be like angels in the sense that we will never die. There will never need to be a replacement. And that whatever it is, it will be supreme and much better than whatever the pleasures of this world is. So, the sons of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered, listen to this, but those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection, notice that, those who are worthy to attain, who's worthy to attain eternal life? That's an amazing thought. Those who are considered worthy to attain um, to the age to come and the resurrection. Who is considered worthy? 
This is the gospel. And the gospel is this. None is worthy. None is worthy to attain to that age or to eternal life. None. All of sin falling short of the glory of God. Even Moses, whom the Sadducees are, um, are referencing, even Moses is unworthy to attain to eternal life and the resurrection. And Jesus, they want to kill Jesus. And Jesus is going to bear the sins and the wrath of God against those sins on Calvary. This is probably Wednesday. He's going to die on Friday. Who's worthy? The worthy one is the one who will be washed in the blood of the Lamb. He will bear the sins. He will bear God's wrath. And all who will place their trust and faith in him will attain to the age to come. Only Jesus is worthy. And only those who are united Jesus, united to Jesus, will attain to that age and the age to come. So we read this. Only those who are worthy. Who's worthy? Those who are united with Christ. If you have not been united with Christ through repenting of your sins and calling and believing on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, um, you're still in your sins and you are not worthy of the age to come and the resurrection. That doesn't mean you can't be. It doesn't mean that, you know, throw up your hands and say, oh, well. No, call upon the name of the Lord. Confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you will be saved. All who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. I am going to plead with you to call upon the name of the Lord and be saved. So, Jesus says, you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. You don't know that God is able to do far beyond what you are. You've put God, you've made God small. You've made your own reason big and you've got things all mixed up. Your reason is is small and God is eternal. So, <clears throat> where they cannot die anymore because they are equal to the angels and the sons of God being sons of the resurrection. Okay, so Jesus now kind of disposes of the silliness. You gave me the silly little question that you thought would stump everybody. Um, but it doesn't stump me. So now I've answered that. Now let's get to the real heart of the issue. Here's the heart of the issue. The heart of the issue is I'm going to teach you doctrinal truth. I'm going to teach you the truth of God's word because you deny the scripture. You don't know the scripture, so let me teach it to you. This untrained rabbi, you don't know. You don't even know the Bible. Let me teach it to you. And this is how, how he begins. But that the dead are raised but that the dead are raised. You can get all wrapped up in your little human reasoning and dilemmas, your false dilemmas, but that the dead are raised. I want to begin by stating this, that resurrection is an essential doctrine of the Christian faith and Jesus Jesus treated it that way. He is correcting those who misunderstood the truth of resurrection. You will note what he did not say. He did not say, hey, we're all brothers. You know, we can disagree on this secondary matter. Or, you know, listen, let's just love one another. No, you're wrong. You don't know the scriptures and I'm going to correct you. This is an essential truth of Christianity. What I mean by an essential truth of Christianity is that to deny it is to deny 
to make it not Christian. If you do not hold to a resurrection, you do not hold to a Christian belief. It's kind of like this. I don't believe, if somebody says, well, I don't believe in the divinity of Christ. Well, that's one thing. You can, you can say, I don't believe in that, but don't call it Christian. It's not Christian. It denies a very core issue of Christianity. There are certain, certain aspects of Christianity, certain teachings, certain doctrines of Christianity that make Christianity Christianity. And to deny them makes it something else. So we would hold to things like the authority and inerrancy of Scripture. We would hold to the full humanity and divinity of Christ. We would hold to the Trinity. We would hold to substitutionary atonement, salvation by grace through faith on the merits of Christ alone. We would hold to these things. We would hold to the resurrection. These are the things that make Christianity Christianity. To deny them is not Christian. There are a lot of secondary issues that you and I debate on. And, and, and we can hold various views on. Even important issues. But there are some core matters of the Christian faith that to deny them ends up being not Christian. And this is where Jesus is. The resurrection. The resurrection is a core doctrinal truth. Um, to deny it is to deny Christianity. You aren't a, it isn't Christianity if there is no resurrection. And this is where Jesus is going. You're wrong. You're wrong. You don't know the scriptures. You don't know the power of God, but that God does raise the dead. Or as he says, but that the dead are raised. Even Moses showed. Why is that word, why is that statement important? Even Moses showed. That's who they believed in. They held the, the authority of Moses. So Jesus, they're saying, Moses didn't talk about a resurrection. And Jesus is saying, oh no, Moses talked about a resurrection. Let me take the, the scriptures that you hold as authoritative and show to you that God, even there, reveals that there is a resurrection. Even Moses held to a resurrection. In other words, the evidence um, or the source of this resurrection truth is found in the Pentateuch. It is found in the first five books of the Bible. And he says that where at the burning bush where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. In other words, he is not the God of the dead. He is the God of the living. So Jesus counters their position. How does he counter them? By relying upon God's word and showing them the, the, the truth of God's word. Listen, you come up with all sorts of crazy ideas because you don't know the scriptures. And because you don't know the scriptures, you have a wrong idea. And because you have a wrong idea, you are living for this life and this life only when there is actually a life to come. And if you believe in the life to come, it will affect how you live in the life that is now here. So you are wrong. Those who died in faith are alive. Those who die in faith do not cease to exist. God is the God of the living. He is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He is not the God of the dead. He is the God of the living. They live and they are awaiting a final resurrection. Folks, I want you to understand this. Death does not end our existence. Death does not end our existence. And this life is not all there is. And if we believe that this life is all there is, you will probably live your life in such a way. But look, but we live, and one day we will stand before the judge of the living and the dead.
Death doesn't end our existence. Life, um, this life is not all there is. Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will never die. Jesus says that even though um, a person dies, he will live. The Bible is filled with this idea that this is not the end of all things. They did not know the scriptures. They did not know the power of God who raises the dead. And now they've been schooled. And then some of the scribes answer, Teacher, you have spoken well. I love this. <laughs> you know, it's not the Sadducees who are saying this. This is scribes. These are Pharisees. Finally, somebody gave us an answer. Now, every time the Sadducees ask us that silly question, we can answer them. Jesus, you've answered. Way to go. Got, got, got us a good answer. Woohoo, Jesus. Good answer. You, you have spoken well. And then it says this they no longer dare to ask him any questions. <laughs> They've come at him one at a time, trying to stump him, trying to get him to, to some sort of verbal misstep, and instead he shames them. Next week we're going to look, Jesus then turns around and asks them a question. By the way, he stumps them. But he also teaches them doctrinal truth. His goal isn't just simply to stump them and ask them an impossible question, but it is to get them to think about who he is. So, but that's next week. So I guess I'll just I'll conclude with, with this. And that is, <clears throat> doctrine matters. Teaching matters. And we need to be careful that we do not sacrifice essential biblical truth on the altar of love and unity. Love and unity is important, but we do not sacrifice essential biblical teachings um, on the altar of love and unity. So, we do not Leave it that. Another thing, I would encourage you to grow in your theological understanding. Um, here's why. Not just so that you become smarter or that you can answer hard questions or anything like that, but I believe that if you increase in your theological understanding, your, your understanding of who God is and what he has done, your awe of God will grow greater and greater. Your love of God will increase and you will follow and your worship will be greater because God's going to get bigger and bigger. The, theology is just a word about God. That's all it means. And God has revealed himself. So when we learn about him, um, it's just amazing. And, 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 and I think that knowing God, learning about God, results in praise. How many of you have read the Bible and, and, and been reading it and, and, or maybe heard somebody say something about God that is so profound, all it makes you want to do is fall down on your face and worship God? Yeah, that, that's... That's, theolo- that's what theology does. I don't want to embarrass Charlie, but that's kind of how I was after Wednesday night. That was an awesome, awesome thoughts that you were bringing up in, in, in Romans 4. It's like, oh my goodness, this is so good. It was just so good. And so we, we, we grow in our theological understanding, not to become smarter, not just simply to become smarter people or more intellectual or increase our IQ or anything like that or be able to answer biblical trivia, or you know, show somebody up on social media about how smart we are. You may be able to do those things. But man, when we do, God becomes so much more glorious and praiseworthy. 
And we love him more and more. And we want to be conformed to his image. So increase your theological understanding. And ultimately, what we need to do is we need to believe God. There are some things about God that, and, and the things that God has spoken that are difficult. Like, what happens to our marriage relationships in the age to come? Some things we, we just don't know, or, or we're not 100% clear on. We, we may have a glimpse, but we don't know. Here's what I'm going to ask you to do. Believe God. Believe God. God has loved us. He's not going to say, well, I've saved you. I've justified, I've elected you, I've called you, I've justified you, I've adopted you, I've united you with, uh, with my son, I've uh, given you my Holy Spirit, I'm conforming you to the image of my son, I'm persevering you, all of these things, and then when I'm done with it, it's going to be miserable for you. All right? God says, there is this glorious, glorious, I'm going to be with you. I'm going to be with you. There's no more glorious place than with God, in the presence of God. Unfiltered. You will see his face. You will see his face. We talked about this morning. John says, when we see him, we'll be like him. What? That's what he's promising. So I don't understand all the stuff that's going to happen. But I'm going to believe that whatever it is, given to us by, the, by a God who is good and a God who will make certain that whatever it is, is far surpasses my expectations. So, teaching matters. Grow in your understanding of God's truth. You'll love God more. You'll be able to believe God more. You'll find greater joy in knowing God with Jesus. Um, let's spend just a few moments maybe in uh, quiet reflection.